Oh, it's so good. I know it's painful to shut off, isn't it? There's so much great story left. But we have to. We have to. If you are a guest with us, I just want to say welcome. My name is Aaron. Um, I'm, the, I'm the lead pastor at Mosaic, and we're pumped that you're here with us. Every, every year we do a series like this called At the Movies, and the reason that we do it is really, really simple. The reason we do it is, is Jesus, when he taught eternal truths, he did something over and over and over again, and that was tell stories. And he told stories all the time, and sometimes almost like an obnoxious way. It's like, just give me a straight answer, right? It's like, how many times do I have to forgive my neighbor? And he'd be like, well, it reminds me of a time, and then he'd go on for 15, 20 minutes and tell a story. He was always telling stories to communicate eternal truths. And so uh, every summer, uh, we do the same. We look, at, uh, we look at popular modern stories and what better stories to look at uh, than film. And so every year we have to do at least one that is uh, more of a, a romantic kind of love interest story. And we have to do that, at least part of it, to be fair, um, because next week we're doing Fight Club, um, which might get me fired. Come find out. Um, it might. Uh, last year we did uh, Dark Knight, and uh, so we kind of got to balance the scales a little bit. But truth be known, it's hard to find four movies that don't include a love story. Uh, in fact, if you look at all four movies that we're showing this year, uh, every single one of them includes a love story, a love interest of, of some kind. And it's hard uh, for us to find stories that don't. And so we've, we've got we've to talk about it. And, and I've actually said this before, and I'll say it again. Uh, truth be known, if I show my cards, I really believe that all of us at heart are hopeless romantics, whether you want to admit it or not. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's not just the, the incredible amounts of money that we spend every year telling stories like this, whether it be through film or, or novels or musicals or comic books or what have you. Uh, but it's more than that. Um, just out of curiosity, if, if you've been to church for any amount of time, I know you've heard this, but even if you haven't, I'm going to guess you've heard this somewhere. How many of you are, uh, you've at least heard it referenced at some point in time that 50% of marriages end in divorce? Okay, so the vast majority of us, all right? So this is not new information for you. Uh, this is not a shock. You're well aware of this fact. Next question, how many of you either have been married, you are married, or you plan to get married someday anyway? Look around, okay? You guys are crazy. Hopeless romantics, every single one of you. Because I think we can all admit, 50-50, those are not good odds. They really aren't, right? If you, if you posed a bet to me and you said, hey, uh, I want to bet you whatever this thing is, and you've got a 50% chance of, of winning. If you lose, though, you lose your house. I'm not taking that bet, right, no matter what. Right? And so every single one of us is aware of the fact that 50% of marriages uh, don't last. 50% like of marriages do, but all that, def- all that really says is that you're going to live in the same house together. That says nothing about whether it's a healthy marriage, a loving marriage, a satisfying marriage. 50% at least end up in the same roof under the same roof together. But 50%, right, involve having to walk through the very painful, taxing, heart-wrenching road of divorce, and yet, statistically, over 90% of us will still choose to walk down that aisle and say, I do. All right, so just admit it. Every single one of you, hopeless romantics we are. All right, when we look at the scriptures, all right, and, we, and we, talk, we look at how God feels about us and how God describes his relationship to his people, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the, the picture that God gives us is actually this. It's of marriage. It's of man and woman, husband and wife, Wesley and Buttercup, lover and beloved. 
And this picture is actually something that we find surfaces over and over and over through the scriptures. Um, John uses this, this message. Paul uses this, this, this picture. Uh, if you look back in the Old Testament, Isaiah, for example, uses this picture. So if you look at Isaiah 62, verse 5, it says this. It says, Then God will rejoice over you as a groom rejoices over his bride. Then God will rejoice over you as a groom rejoices over his bride. And if, anybody, if you've been married, you know that a groom rejoices over his bride on that wedding day. There's not a more beautiful sight. I remember 10 years and a couple of weeks ago, standing at the end of that aisle and watching as those back doors swung open and Megan was standing there. And I remember what it felt like. I was blown away and amazed. I was shocked that she showed up, that she's actually going to go through with this. And she's walking down the aisle and I'm bawling like a baby and my dad married us. He's crying. Megan's crying. Her dad is really crying. We're all crying. And I remember just, be, just being just flabbergasted that this woman is going to say, I do, and be mine forever. Right? And this is the picture of how God feels towards his sons and his daughters. It's a very, very powerful image. Right? So you look all the way back in Isaiah, and this is the picture. You look all the way to the end of the Bible. You look at Revelations chapter 19, and again, we're given this picture of a wedding celebration of a wedding celebration, right? And so we talked about this several weeks ago, right? We've been, those of us who are in Christ, we are resurrected. God has ushered in his kingdom fully here. And the picture we're given is a wedding celebration. And this is what it says. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. It's Jesus. And his bride has prepared herself. Right? It's a picture of us, our bride, his bride being prepared, and Jesus looks at us and his heart skips a beat. And there is a celebration, a wedding celebration, because we are with our beloved. Right? So you look all the way back, Old Testament, New Testament, Paul, John, it's everywhere. But the very first time that this picture is introduced is in a very small, often overlooked book in the Old Testament by the name of Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet uh, during the history of God's people at a time of unprecedented prosperity. Right? There's just economic goodness all around. Um, but one of the things that we find, it's kind of one of those interesting little ticks uh, throughout the scriptures and in the human story, is that whenever there's economic increase, one of the things that often happens is what we find is a spiritual decrease. And God's people have been very unfaithful. And there's just all types of uh, rebellion and sin. And so God raises up a prophet. He raises up a man uh, by the name of Hosea. And he wants Hosea to do something. Uh, honestly, as I read this story, which is it's pretty mind-blowing. And it's pretty, it's pretty troubling. Right? And so God comes to Hosea and he says, You have been faithful up until now. You are my voice piece. You are my prophet. And you have done a good job of speaking my message to my people. Now I want you to do something crazy. Uh, in the name of love, in the name of my love for my people, I want you to do something crazy. Right? And love can make you do very crazy things. Right? When Megan and I met, we were hopped up in all types of crazy. Right? We were in love. And I don't mean like the rich, full, enduring kind of love. I'm talking about the fiery, fleety, you know, romance uh, that we see depicted in so many movies. We were just up to our necks in it. We couldn't get enough of each other. We met each other, and in a moment of craziness, two weeks after meeting each other, we decided we're going to get married. Two weeks. 
decided we we're going to get married. Two weeks after that, uh, we went ahead and picked out rings. Just went for it. I would not, by the way, recommend this <laughs> to anybody. God has been so gracious. We could have just train wrecked this thing. But we were just, we were hopped up on crazy. We were in love. And I remember right after that, I went to the Dominican Republic for a couple months. And I, I lived in a really impoverished area. I was there for two months. Which, when you have young, fiery, passionate, romantic love, that's like an eternity, two months. It's like, kill me now, God. And so we're here, and I'm in this very impoverished area. There's, and electricity was kind of in and out all the time. And so sometimes we would be with, like, without electricity for days or even weeks at a time. And snail mail was especially slow. In fact, in two months, I think we got to exchange uh, twice, back and forth. You know, and that, there was once she sent me a package, and she had sprayed like, the letter like, with perfume. And I remember like, just breathing it in. It's like, I'm breathing for the first time, you know. I'm, I'm writing poetry. I'm writing songs, which I have no business writing songs. But I'm doing it all. I'm just hopped up on this. And, and so internet really became like our salvation when there was electricity, but oftentimes there wasn't. So I would, well, you do, I'd hop on these, they had like these motorcycle taxis, which everybody told us not to ride because they're incredibly dangerous and traffic was just insane. But I would just go. And we would go until we found blocks of Santo Domingo that had power. And I would just start asking, like, I knew like five words in Spanish at that time. I don't even remember how to say it, but Internet Cafe. I was, I, internet, where's the Internet Cafe? And I would look. Sometimes it would take me all night. We'd get done working all day, and, and I'd finally find a place, and I would sit down, and she'd be on the other end. And this was like pre-Skype, pre-Google Hangout. This is instant messenger, baby, okay? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so it's like I would log in, or she, you know, and, and I would see her, and we would just chat for hours, you know, and it was just like breathing. Um, and, and it's the crazy things you do for love. And oftentimes we do that for half the night, you know, and I'd get done and my ride is gone and it would take me half the night to find out where I was, find where I was staying. And I'd get up and work a full day the next day. And, but honestly, for this young guy who was in love, that was nothing because I was riding high on love, baby. <laughs> it's crazy, the crazy things you do for love make you go crazy. And God comes to Hosea and he says, in the name of love, namely my love for my people, I want you to do something crazy. And so this is what he says to Hosea, and this is in uh, verse 2. The Lord said to him, I want you to go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Alright, now this phrase, an adulterous wife, depending on what translation you open up and read, it gets translated in a number of different ways, but it says the exact same thing. As a promiscuous wife, an adulterous wife, a harlot, a wife of whoredom, which is my personal favorite, prostitute, it's probably the most common. And God says, comes to him and he says, look, I have a job for you. All right, here's your job. You are to go and, and marry this woman named Gomer. I know, it's a brutal name. It's a bad name. Right, but he says, I want you to marry her. I want you to take her to be your wife. And she is not a normal Israelite woman. She's a prostitute. And while you've been very faithful to me and you have remained pure up until now, uh, she is not. In fact, your name is going to be at the bottom of a long list of other lovers. And truth be known, she's never been faithful to a single man and there's no reason to believe that she will be faithful to you. But your job is to go and choose her as your wife. To look past that and choose to love her anyway and keep that family together. How many of us want that job? Right? 
uh, God, can, can we talk about this for a minute? Right now, if I'm really honest with you, this is a story that is troubling, isn't it? That God would ask this man who's been very faithful and tried to do the right things for most of his life, who's been called up by God to do something like this. It's very troubling, right? In fact, if you're one of those people that still thinks that God's ultimate goal for your life is to keep you comfortable, right? to ensure that your faith never costs you anything, that you're never asked to do anything that requires sacrifice or makes you uncomfortable, to essentially put things on cruise control, that if you do the faithful thing, it's always going to go well for you, this passage, this story should kick that idea right in the throat. It should shatter that. Right, this is a very uncomfortable story. And, and I think we just need to admit that on the front end. And sit with that. And, and recognize that the truth is, God never said there would never be pain. He never promised that. What He promised is that when there's pain, is that you won't be alone. And there are times when He calls us to go into the pain of others, to own their pain for their good. And that's what He does here. And He calls Hosea to do the unthinkable. And so Hosea does, right? And by cultural customs, uh, Gomer may not have had really anything to do with this. Right? Hosea would have gone and, and met with her father and worked something out. And undoubtedly, I bet her father was, was a little relieved and perhaps surprised that somebody still wanted to marry this woman. Undoubtedly, she was an embarrassment to her family in this culture. But Hosea goes, takes her as his wife, and for the first time, this picture of our relationship to God is explicitly introduced in the scriptures. Hosea marries Gomer. Gomer, the promiscuous. Gomer, the adulterer. Gomer, the prostitute. And what we find is in very short time, she lives up to her reputation. And despite the fact that Hosea looks past her reputation, looks past her past, and chooses to take her as his wife, she runs off and has an affair with another man. Right? And if you've ever had to walk that road, or you've been close to somebody who has, you know that that is a kind of pain that I would not wish on anyone. Right? The breach of trust, right? the violation of this covenant that is marriage, feeling like your world has just completely been turned upside down, trying to figure out how do I pick up the pieces from this? Right, where do I go from here? And she has, she has an affair. And one affair turns into multiple affairs. And then she gets pregnant with another man's child. And then another. And then another. Right, and night after night, Hosea waits at home for his wife to come home. And many nights, she simply doesn't. Right? And there are nights that he goes out in the streets looking for his wife, putting all pride aside and asking, have you seen my wife? Right? And undoubtedly, there was talk. The prophet looking for his wife, the harlot. Wow. Can't even keep his own family together. And he's going to speak to us about God? Right. And yet he goes out looking for her anyway. Looking for his wife. I mean, we're talking, about, we're talking about years of unfaithfulness here. And, and what, we, what we hear from Hosea is, is lament 
right? And so in, in chapter 2, verse 5, this is what he says. Their mother of these children is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after other lovers and I will sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. Right, heartbroken. And, and, and God comes along this story, this parallel story, and God says, are you getting it yet, Hosea? This is exactly how I feel. This has been my experience. Right, in fact, God says this in, in later on in that same chapter, and he's talking about us, his bride. And he says, she has burned incense to the Baals, to these other gods. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after other lovers, but me she forgot declares the Lord. Right? And we find something really interesting. And this week, if you have time, I would really encourage you to read Hosea, especially the first three chapters. It is such an incredible book. But God flips. God flips out. I mean, it is like reading a tantrum. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't want to mean God like looking for the lightning bolt, but really, it sounds like a tantrum. Like, God gets so angry, and he just flips out. And it's, honestly, it's really amazing to read because God opens his heart to us. And of course, he doesn't have to do that. And for some of us, I think we have like this stoic picture of God, right? Like he's this unshakable, unmovable, unemotional being in the sky who looks down on us, usually disappointed, right? But God, it just he opens his heart and shows us, his children, right, his beloved, how he feels. And there's just this, this heartbrokenness, right? He doesn't have to do that. And honestly, if he didn't care that much, he would just pull away, and walk away and let us just have the consequences of our sin, right? But he doesn't. He opens up his heart. It's like, it's like he cares too much, like a heartbroken lover. And he laments. He gets jealous. Right? Do you know God, the Bible says a number of times that God is actually, God is a jealous God. And jealousy is a very strong emotion. Take it from a guy who knows. Right? My wife will attest to this. When we got married, I was a jealous guy. All the time, right? We would, we would be walking by, and I, like, I, just, I wanted her to myself, you know? And, and we weren't married yet, we were engaged, and I was just out of control. And so we would walk by other guys, and I almost like obsessively would watch their eyes to see if they checked out my fiancé. And when they did, I would flip, a, I would just go off, you know? And so honestly, guys would give me the double take. Because they'd be walking by, and I'd be giving them this look <laughs> of, I want to light you on fire. Like, I, I, I hate you with the, with the heat of a thousand suns, you know? And they would look at me like, why does a guy want to look like you want to kill me? And the truth was because I, uh, many times I did. If you checked out my fiance, I did want to kill you. I, I just off the, off the handle. And so uh, one night in particular, we were mini golfing over on uh, Old Cheney 56, you know, that spot over there? I forget what it's called. And so we're, we're mini golfing and walking to the golf course area I just, you know, got our clubs and, and our balls, and, and this guy walks by, very large man, large black man, has 100 pounds on me, easy, he looks like a football player, probably a Husker football player, and I don't know if, it, he looked at, okay, he looked at Megan, like I've never seen a man look at another woman with clothes on, you know what I'm saying? Like just undressed her with his eyes, looks her up and down, in my mind he said, mm, hmm, I don't think he did, but that's what I heard. And I don't know if it was the heat or the fact that I was wielding a golf club. 
But I snapped. I, I lost it. And I love when Megan tells this story because she says she turns around to screaming and she just sees me in the, in the, up in the face of this very large man with the putter over my head threatening his life. And uh, I lost it. I lost it. I was out of control. And I, I've chilled out. She'll tell you I've chilled out. I think marriage does that. Uh, maybe kids. I don't know. Now it's like, yeah, you see, see that? That's mine. My wife, mother of my children, is she hot or what? You know, like it's changed. It's just completely changed. But jealousy, jealousy is an emotion that I'm very, very familiar with. And what we hear is that God, over and over and over, that God is a jealous God. Right? And one of the emotions that often uh, is very interconnected to jealousy is anger. Right? And so God, in this passage, just erupts in anger and in jealousy. The Bible says that he is a jealous, jealous God. Right? And so in this passage, he just erupts. Listen to some of these passages. These are, this is how God responds to this just repeated unfaithfulness of his people. Verses 2 and 3. Chapter 2 says, Rebu- Rebuke your mother. And speaking of us. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. And I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. And that's extreme. He continues in verse 8, a little bit further down. He says, She does not realize that it was I It was I who gave her everything she has. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold. But she gave all my gifts to Baal, to this other God. So now I will take back the ripened grain and new wine. I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and the linen clothing that I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public while all of her other lovers look on. No one will be able to rescue her from my hands. Right, so God, I mean, we are hearing a lot of just rage, just anger. And what we find is that God is a jealous God. And there comes a point in time where when we just insist on chasing after other lovers and pursuing things that cannot save, there gets to be a point in time where God just steps back and says, fine. If that's that's what you want, fine. If you're going to chase after that, and continue to, to give your heart and your soul to these things that cannot satisfy and cannot save, fine. Go ahead, shipwreck your life. See how it works without me. And that might sound, sound kind of cruel. But what we find in the, in the story of Hosea and throughout the Scriptures is it is always with a purpose. It's always with a purpose. And that purpose is to draw us back to Himself. Have you ever noticed, isn't it amazing... How many stories of life change? Just, just think for a moment of some of the stories of life change that you've come to know. People who, who were running one direction and they met Jesus and everything changed. Isn't it amazing how many of those stories involve hitting rock bottom first? Isn't it crazy? All right, and I would submit to you that it's really simple. The reason is because for some of us, we've got to hit rock bottom before we'll actually look up. Right, for some of us, we have to, we just have, some of us have to learn the hard way, man. I'm one of those people. Right, for some of us, we have to chase whatever it is that our heart is set on that we think is going to satisfy. That job, notoriety, a relationship, 
financial success or comfort or whatever that is and all of it and have it and actually get it and all of its trappings or lose everything on the way chasing it for us to realize, wow, this is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. That's why all the time we open up and we look, you know, it's like out of Hollywood. The stories are amazing, aren't they? People who have everything just destroying themselves all the time. So much drugs. So many relationships that don't make it. And they've got wealth and they've got fame. They've got so many things that I think many of us, if we were really honest, we kind of secretly wish we had. And they have all of it and yet they're still dying of drug overdoses. Right? Like that the guy from Glee. You know, this, well, that, this last week. Just, but it, I mean, every week we could name somebody else, right? It, it's all, it's constant. Some of us, some of us just simply won't listen to, you know, we don't, we don't heed the warning. We won't, won't believe that the stove is hot, right? When, when Paige was little, we would walk her to the oven, or the stove all the time, and we'd be like, when she's just little, we'd be like, hot, hot, ouch, don't touch, hot. You know, so one of her first words was, and so we'd walk through the, we'd always be in there. If we ever picked her up in the kitchen, what, no matter what we were doing, she'd be like, hot, hot. <laughs> and so Paige has always been like our compliant one. Like she wants to make people happy. She's really teachable. And then we had Chloe. And Chloe's not that way. Paige believed us that the stove is hot. We've never had an issue with Paige. Chloe, ever since we told her that the stove is hot, she's been trying to find a way to touch it. Right? Just like her dad. That girl, there are going to be some things that she's going to have to learn the hard way. Right? And for some of us, that's just, whether it's the way that we're wired or just the choices that we make, some of us, we're going to have to learn that the stove is hot the hard way. And what God says is he, let, he just steps back. At some point, he says, you know what? I'm going to let you sit with the consequences of your actions. You have to learn that this thing that you're chasing, it will never satisfy. It will never save you. It can only really be enjoyed in right relationship with me. But I'm ultimately the one that you need. You've got to learn that. Some of us have to learn that the hard way. Right? And so Hosea does the exact same thing with Gomer. He chases after his wife, we find throughout the story, over and over and over again. And then it gets to a point where he just lets her have what she wants. And she runs off to be with another man. Right? This man that she thought loved her and cared for her, but when the fun was over, sold her into slavery. Right, and so there comes this point in the story where she is brought to the marketplace, which just about every community at that time had, where men and women were bought and sold like cattle. Right, and oftentimes they were stripped down naked, especially if a potential buyer wanted to see the potential property he would be purchasing. And she is there in her shame, and you know in that community that there are people and the talk continues. Wow, she made her bed. Now she gets to sleep in it. What a disappointment. Her family must be so ashamed. And what was Hosea thinking? Finally, now she's got to deal with the consequences of her actions. And then something amazing happens. And in this crowd of marketplace comes and walks Hosea. And the bidding begins and he starts to bid for his wife and ultimately purchase her, purchases her back and takes her home. Now hear me on this. If this is a good religious story, this is how it would go, right? He purchases her back, and over the next days and weeks that, that went on, 
he started to visit Gomer and made sure that she promised to never run away from another, or with another man ever again. And he began to visit her very slowly. And then as she obeyed, as she was faithful in the months to follow, they started dating again, spending a little bit more time with one another. And in the years that followed, as she proved that she really meant it and she was really moral and she did all the right things and none of the wrong things and she never ran off and had another affair, then he chose to love her again. That's how this would read if this was a good religious story. But you know what? While religion might try to tame this and make this a little less scandalous, God does not. And so what we find in reading this story is that Hosea embraces Gomer. And the truth is, we don't have any record or any record that she ever really gets it right. But he goes and he chooses to love her anyway. And then in parallel, in this beautiful way, God, after erupting with anger, erupting with jealousy, as he shares with us and opens up his heart and shows how heartbroken and grieved he is over the unfaithfulness as his people keep running off with other lovers, then God says this, and listen to this, this is so incredible. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, this is what it says. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return to her vineyard, her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into the gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there, as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, this is so beautiful, you will call me my husband instead of my master. And I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I, unlike you, I will be faithful to you and I will make you mine. And you will finally know me as the Lord. And then he almost goes back on the anger and the jealousy and some of the things he said. And he says, I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. Right? And what we find in this story is the scandalous truth. That no matter how far you run, God pursues you still. No matter what you do, you can fight it, you can run from it, you can reject it. You can run into the darkest hell and God will pursue you still. It's an amazing, scandalous story. It, 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 honestly, it, it rubs up against and violates our sense of fairness and justice, doesn't it? Apparently, God's justice is very different than ours. It's a very different idea of what we deserve. Right, just over 15 years ago, I stopped running. And I spent most of my life running from Jesus and doing things to this day that I regret and I wish I could go back and do differently. Hurt a lot of people along the way. But there came a time, and I just felt like, honestly, throughout all of it, through the hell that I ran into, that God just kept chasing me. I just remember, that's how I, I described it when I, when I finally came to my senses. It just felt like he was always there in this annoying way, even when I didn't want him. Kept pursuing, kept pursuing, kept pursuing. And finally, I just got to a point where I realized, this is just not working on my own. 
And all these other things, they, they were lies. They, they didn't satisfy. They didn't give me what I wanted. And I hated myself. I hated my life. I hated my reality. And I just threw my hands up and I said, fine. I'm done running. But I tell you what, I never pursued God. Never. But he pursued me. There's a prayer by Simon Tugwell. It's so good. It reads like this. It says, So long as we imagine that it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart, but it is the other way around. He is looking for us. And so you know what? We can afford to recognize that very often we are not looking for God. Far from it. We are in full flight from Him, in high rebellion against Him, and He knows that. And He's taken it into account. He has followed us into our own darkness. There, where we thought to finally escape Him, we run straight into His arms. So we do not have to erect a false piety for ourselves to give us the hope of salvation. Our hope is in His determination to save us, and He will not give in. I love that. You have to know, whether you're sitting in here this morning, whether you're listening to this podcast, wherever you are, this morning, you have to know that He pursues you still. No matter what you've done, whether you have a rap sheet a mile long or not, He pursues you still. Whether you broke all Ten Commandments yesterday or not, He pursues you still. No matter the level of disappointment you have in yourself, or those who have done you wrong, no matter how bitter you've perhaps become, He pursues you still. Maybe you've been a Christian for most of your life. You said, I do, a long time ago. But truth be known, if you had to grade yourself, it would be a sad grade when it comes to faithfulness. And you know it, and God knows it. You have to know He pursues you still. He pursues you still. And you can run from it. And you can fight it. And you can run from Him into the darkest hell. But you have to know that He pursues you still. And so you can fight it. You can run from it. Or you can stop and say yes. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you have to know that God's pursuit of you did not stop the day that you said, I do. As your beloved, as the best, the greatest husband will ever live, He pursues you still. And there is more to be had. So I want to end in just reading that passage again to you in the first person. These are God's words to you, to His beloved. And just let these wash over you. But then I will win you back once again. I will lead you into the desert and I will speak tenderly to you there. I will return your vineyards to you and I will transform the valley of trouble for you into a gateway of hope. And you will give yourself to me there as your ancestors did so long ago when they were young and I led them out of captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, no longer my master. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you 
and I will make you mine. And you will finally know me as the Lord. And I will show love to those of you who have been called not loved. And to those who have been called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And you will reply, finally, that you are my God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for the people in this room who are hurting units right now. And they hear this, and maybe a part of them wants to believe this, but they don't. It sounds too good to be true. To picture themselves as loved without end, without small fine print, and yet you pursue them still. And Lord, I ask that this morning that there would be a seed that would be planted inside of them that you would grow in the days and the weeks to come. No matter how long it takes, Lord, I know you will pursue them. And I ask that you do, and I ask that those scales would fall off their eyes and they would come to see themselves as you see them, which is as a beautiful bride. That when you see them, your heart skips a beat, Lord. That they don't have to fight in a religious way to live a perfect moral life and that your love is not contingent, contingent on that but that you love us and that you pursue them still Lord God help us to live out of this truth out of this reality help us to, to love as a people who know that they are loved as a people who have been pursued and who continue to be pursue. Lord, help us to have the courage to stop running, to stop fighting, to stop rejecting the love that is so freely offered us every single day. Lord, we pray these things in your name as your beloved people and all God's people say, Amen.